either. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. I don't think this is working, but I th my voice is. Okay. Do you all hear me back there? Okay. So you, we we began last week with the introduction and the overview of the Safer Eov. And we cautioned everyone, and this is very important today, to make sure not to stop learning Sefer Eov in the middle, not to just read the beginning and then put it down, because unless we continue Sefer Eov to the end, to the resolution, we are left only with questions, complaints, frustrations, anger, and de de desperation, even depression. The beginning of Sefer Eov, the first 10 chapters, which we will go through today, are a conversation, an argument between Eov, his first friend, good, his first friend, um, his first friend whose name is Eliphaz, and his second friend, who then interjects after a couple chapters, named Bildad. And in between, they are offering their presentations. Eov is offering his rebuttal. They are offering other presentations. And in these chapters, we find many, many fundamental questions and answers about Jewish ideology, emuna, trust in God, hashgacha pratis, purpose of life, mm -hmm. purpose of death, God's conducting of the world. All these big issues are presented clearly in the first 10 chapters and dealt with, okay? So we're going to start out here, Tanya, let me just set this up. We're going to start out with, um, here's the airplane mode. Okay, so we're, yeah. so, okay, we're starting out with, first of all, does anybody have my grandfather's safer? Because if you're following along with me, it's page 12. Okay. So we start out with the argument of the Satan to God, the argument that allowed that. You have to swipe here and find it. Okay, we have this one. Forget it. Okay, the argument of the Satan. Forget it. No. The argument of the Satan, which is why, the, why he is justified in bringing upon Eov all these Yisurim and testing him and asking him to go way beyond his limits of what he's accomplished here. So in order to understand this, we're going to read a couple of the Pesukim. Follow along with me. It's Perak Aleph Pasuk Vav. Vayhi b'yomahu v'yavo b'nei ha'elohim l'syatsev al Hashem. All the angels came to stand before God. Vayavo gam ha'satan b'tocham and the satan is among them and we said... The Satan is not, cannot be, it's completely anti-Jewish, for the Satan to be some alternate competing power that is that has intentions or goals that are opposite God's intentions. God did not leave room in creation for another power to still exist or coexist that would be like an anti-God. The Christians do have an anti-Christ concept. We do not have an anti-God concept. We have... HaKadosh Baruch Hu alone, creator of all forces, of all powers, every so-called Malach, which is a force unleashed in the world. And among these forces is a, a force called the Satan, which is there, like weights at a gym, to challenge people to grow stronger. 
built into the world is a force. It's axiomatic, okay? It is here. There are challenges that we encounter that are there for the sole purpose of pushing us to the next level, and they appear to us as perhaps obstacles, perhaps overwhelming. They're there, we, per we may per might perceive as Eov did to crush us, but that is not their purpose. The satan, the force to force, the, the, the force unleashed by Hashem, that forces us to grow, present, presents an argument, which means to say that this is a a, this is a discussion, this is a philosophical reality that has to be unpacked, so to speak, for us, and we begin to understand all its dimensions. And here it's given, the Satan expresses, Vayomer Hashem ala Satan. Ma'ayin Tava, where are you coming from? Vayana Satan es Hashem, Vayomer, Mishot Ba'aretu, Mishalech Ba'ai, have been circulating the world and traveling through it, and Hashem says to him, so, you've seen everybody, you've seen who's doing well here, have you seen anyone as perfect as my servant Eov. He says, have you paid attention to my servant Eov? Do you know, do you agree with me? Ki ein kamohu ba'aretz. There's nobody as, one, as good as him. There's no one like him. Ishtan, v'yashar, yere lokim, v'sar meira. He has all the qualities of a tzaddik. He is, he is perfect, straight, God-fearing, and does no evil. So the satan says to him, that's all true. Except, why shouldn't he be like that? Why shouldn't he be God-fearing and perfect and, and, and uh, walking in the ways of Hashem at all times? Look at his life. He's completely blessed. He has everything anybody could ever ask for. Why don't we challenge him and see how he does if we remove from him all those things that make his life so satisfying, so gratifying? Let's try that. So Hashem says, good, I give you permission to do that. But don't kill him, you're not allowed to touch him, just take away his position, possessions. So the satan goes ahead, and in other words, this is again presented as a satan. This is how people are forced to draw out of themselves their greatest potential, their greatest um, uh, uh, capacity spiritually. And uh, Eov succeeds in the beginning. He took away everything. If you look closely, you see that he, uh, Eov gets, suddenly starts getting, as Eov is minding his business, he suddenly starts getting message, messages from messengers. One tells him that a fire has destroyed all his sheep and their handlers. He's lost his, all his sheep. The second one comes and says that, uh, uh, that he's lost all his camels and all the handlers have been killed also. And then, in other words, all his possessions. He's destitute. He doesn't have one penny left. Everything that, that he had is gone. And then finally, another messenger comes and tells him the ultimate tragedy that all his ten children have died in the collapse of this fat house, this mansion, this palace that they were feasting in. So he has no home, no children, and no possessions, all in an instant. How does Eov respond? The famous pasuk that we all are trained to to default to when we hear of tragedy and loss. Eov says, Hashem Natan, Hashem Lakach, Yehi Shem Hashem Avarach. He passes this test. Hashem gives, Hashem takes, Hashem is blessed. Nothing, nothing. He doesn't go anywhere near a complaint, a question, or anything. So Hashem says to the Satan, so how did Eov do? Pretty good, no? So the Satan said, it's not good enough. Obviously, this wasn't a big enough challenge for him. Let's go to the next step. Let's afflict him physically. Let's put him in a state of abject physical m torture, of misery, of pain.
pain, unbearable pain. And then let's see what he does. So first we're going to talk about here uh, just what the, the, the test might have been, what, uh, what type of physical suffering um, he un- under- underwent, and what was happening here, what was this challenge ultimately about. We're going to define the word tzaddik, the title tzaddik. First of all, my grandfather writes that he had a friend who was a doctor who was named Dr. David Macht, who said that this disease of Eov is uh, extremely similar. It, it, all the details of it sounds like something called pemphigus, which is described as the following. An acute disease characterized by the formation of irregularly scattered, variously sized round or oval blebs, from that of a small pea size to that of a hen's egg size, blisters arising suddenly, unexpectedly from the skin, which is accompanied by constitutional disturbances, which means gastrointestinal, burning and pain, aches and pains in the bones and the joints, lack of appetite, diarrhea, depression, and fatal in 90% of the cases. It describes Eova sitting in a pile of ashes, either to cool down his burning skin or because he's scraping off his skin, which is dead, until it's a pile of like ashes around him. And uh, then things start to change. The idea of a tzaddik, my grandfather says here, has to be understood because this is what the all nesilnas are for, is the idea of a tzaddik is to, is, is to not necessarily maintain the level you're at and the equilibrium that a person has found in their relationship to Hashem. But a tzaddik is somebody that keeps rising to the next level. What happened here is, in the first challenge, Eov had enough spiritual, um, uh, religious, emunat um, type of equipment to deal with his challenge. That was the madrega he had reached. He had reached the madrega where he could say, Hashem Nasan, Vashem Lakach, even though he lost everything in life. He wasn't being pushed. That was how high of a madrega he was on. That's where his starting point was. Okay? That was Eov's starting point. In order to push a person even past that, you need something stri- much harsher for a person as righteous as Eo. The challenge has got to be even harder. So the Sutton takes it to the next level, and he wants Eo. The whole purpose of this is Eo should rise to a challenge. And we mentioned last week that the challenge Hashem wanted him to rise to, and that is why he's always compared to Avraham Avinu, is the challenge which he did not succeed at. And this book is written to tell us how to avoid the pitfalls that Eov did fall into. And if he hadn't, we would say, in the beginning of Shemona Esrei, Baruch Atah Hashem, Elokeinu, Elokei Avaseinu, Elokei Avraham, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov, Elokei Eov. And he would have been the founder, or one of the fathers of a great religion. He would have been either among our fathers, or if not, if he wasn't a Jew, he would be the founder of a great and true religion, a religion that knew how to direct people into attachment to Hashem. But because he got stuck on the problem of his own mind and his own understanding, and he said, I cannot fully love you and embrace you if I don't understand why I'm suffering, and he got stuck there, and he didn't rise beyond that level, he did not start any new religion. He is not the father of any great philosophy. He has not brought the world to any great truth because he could not pass this part of the Nisayim, which was designed specifically to push him to accept Hashem despite the fact that his mind cannot comprehend the ways of Hashem. 
So that where he is being asked to be a greater tzaddik is to go to that point. And a tzaddik is someone who keeps rising. However, what's interesting about the notion of tzaddik is if you look in Torah where the word tzaddik or tzedek is used, it's used in business. A hin tzedek, an even tzedek. So somebody comes in the olden days to a, uh, a mill and they want to buy flour and they ask for... They, want, they ask for a, uh, a certain amount of flour. Let's say they ask for, let's call it a pound, or a kilo. So the, the, the owner, right, the person who was selling him the flour, had a stone that weighed, let's say, one kilo precisely. And he put that stone on one side of the scale and exactly one kilo on the other side of the scale. That stone was precise, it was consistent, it was always exactly one kilo. It was never an ounce more or less. That's called an even tzedek. It is precisely, exactly as it always is, it is consistent. So the word tzedek, which is the root of the word tzedek, means consistency. But at the same time, tzedek means always growing. So how is one consistent and at the same time always changing for the better? Yeah, consistently growing and consistently trusting, this is where you have had t- trouble, consistently secure and trusting that everything is done correctly and not letting the events themselves interfere with the capacity of the human being to re- retain, tr- retain within himself complete connection to Hashem and trust in Hashem which Eov does get as a reward for all his suffering in the end. And we have to get there. So number one, we have this, the purpose of the, of the Nisayon is strictly to push Eov to the next level, to get him to perhaps achieve something that would qualify him to be the founder or maybe one of the founders of true religion, of, true, of real truth, of an ideology that could save humanity and could direct humanity. That's, it was worth passing this test, but Eov got stuck. Now, the first, the first reaction, when he starts sitting there in enormous pain, and here we're already in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is the arrival of his friends who sit in silence for a few days with him, just crying with him at the misery that he's in, not uttering a word. And the first reaction that anybody has is the wife of Eov. And she's not given very much time here because she has one very simple reaction. And she says to him, she basically says to him, this is too much. There's no purpose in it. Death is better than this, so I have an idea for you. And she says, Beirach Elokim Vames. So just bless Hashem, which is a euphemism for the opposite. Bless Hashem and die. Because if you do that, he will kill you. If you turn around and blaspheme Hashem, you will die because Hashem is watching what's happening and you're not allowed to do that. So that's the solution. And that's her first suggestion. And even now, in the beginning, when Eov is suffering terribly, okay, he refuses. He says, that is not an option. That is not an option. I will never do that. And Eov never actually, in an open way, utters a single word to directly blaspheme HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he does get angry, he does demand an explanation, he does get depressed, he denies Ashkacha Pratis, he denies Olam Haba, he goes through all kinds of phases. 
But he does not directly do what this wife said, ever, and he always maintains this is not an option, because he is a, <coughs> he is a tzaddik, and he has a whole life history of emun and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and nothing has ever challenged it to this degree. And so he can still draw on the resources, despite the immediate situation, of there's still some leftover emunah in there that isn't washed away in this challenge, that allows him to be very strong in this area and absolutely make it, you know, set down the, 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 the bottom line. Never will he utter such a word, no matter what happens to him against the Kaddish Baruch So that argument goes out the window. That will, that's not an option. That will never happen in this book. And he says to his wife, Gam et hatov nekabel me'et halokim v'et lo nekabel. We'll accept all the good, but we won't accept the bad. So he understands that he has to accept the bad. <coughs> Eov never denies that he, it's his job as a human being to accept what Hashem gives him. He never says he shouldn't have to endure it. He never says that, he, that, shouldn't, that, he, that he, it's wrong for Hashem to do this to him. All Eov keeps saying is, explain to me why you're doing this to me. And different aspects of that argument. Then in, in enter his three friends. Okay, and their arguments are, are not going to be reactions like his wife, oh, just get it over with. They're going to actually logic with him. What, how could we work our way through this? Let's sort this out. What could be going on here? So the three, three friends we will meet over and over again are Elifaz Hatemani. He's from the east, not necessarily Yemen, but from the east. And this is associated with the son of Asa, Elifaz, a great prophet, wise man of the east. In fact, Eov is from the east. And so is Bildad, the next friend we're going to meet today. And so is Tsofer. And even, and even Elihu, who we're going to meet later on. They're all from the East. The East produced wise men. We know about the ancient wise men, Confucius, early, early on. The East was known for producing wise men. In fact, Shlomo HaMelech was praised in that he was smarter than all the wise men of the East. So they have a legacy of great wisdom and truth. They're coming from a place of truth. Where do they get their wisdom from? Just to digress for a split second without going into the Pasuk. Back in Toldos, the Torah tells us that Hashem gave Yitzchak everything before he died. And then the next Pasuk says, and to the children of his concubine, which probably is Hugger, who he married at the end, who used to be a concubine, he gave gifts. And Rashi asks, we just said that he gave everything to Yitzchak. So what are these gifts that he gave to his other children who he sent? And then the Pasuk says, V'yashalchim kedma el eret kedem. He sent them to the east. So Rashi says he gave them shame tuma, which makes no sense. Why would Avraham give them the name of tuma? Well, Avraham eradicated tuma. He broke the idols. So Sifzei Adds, there's a missing letter here. Sometimes the manuscripts are copied in a way letters get lost. Shame essentially says shame bituma. My grandfather of Shwab explained to me that he gave them the name of Akadash Baruch Hu with permission to access it, to utilize it in a state of tuma, meaning without mitzvahs. When you go to the east, that's what you that's what you'll find. Lots of truths that are similar to our ideas. No mitzvahs. No scharva onesh. It's all self-discipline. 
So that's why it's so attractive. It's the best of both worlds, right? You get all the brilliant ideology and mystical concepts, and you get nobody tells you you have to do anything. So um, these are all from the either Eastern wise men and their Eos friends, and they are also, in fact, Eliphaz is recorded as even having Nevoah, that intelligence. So Eov, they sit with him quietly, like you're supposed to do when you visit an oval. And the first one to speak is Eov. After sitting there, they sat with him. It says, They sat on the ground with him seven days and seven nights. No one spoke a word. They saw his pain was very great. And finally, Eov opens his mouth. Eov's first speech starts in, in chapter 3. And his speech, and what he says is that... Uh, what he starts out by saying is based on his trust, his absolute trust in Hashem's justice. Okay? Since Eov knows that Hashem is absolutely just, and since Eov can make no sense of his suffering, because he has already looked into his heart and soul and has concluded that he is not a sinner. There is nothing that he can find that merits a punishment. And he can't understand why this would happen to him. And he doesn't assume that God is sadistic and just likes to see people suffer, and he doesn't even assume that maybe he has some small sin, and he does. Later on he actually says, I might, let's say I had some small sin to this extent, to this is my suffering, and what benefit, he'll ask later, do you have from me suffering anyway? If you don't want someone in your world who violates your word, so eliminate him. But what are you gaining from the fact that I'm just sitting here suffering purposefully, purposelessly and I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with it? <laughs> what benefit is this to you? So here, but he knows that Hashem is just, absolutely just. So the first conclusion he comes to is, there is justice, I'm suffering, I'm innocent. It must be that this world is not the place of justice, and the next world is the place where all things are sorted out and everybody gets their scharva onish. And this world is just haphazard. The first thing Eov comes up with is there's no hashgacha pratis. That's his first argument. He says, and this argument is based on his strong faith in Hashem's justice. And this is what leads him to deny the concept of hashgacha pratis. And, of course, with this line of reasoning, he is now sinning. He is not blamed for his sin, because he's in extreme duress. But when we say that he's sinning, it's not that he's going to get punished for it. Hashem gives him a reward for the suffering. Sinning against his potential. This is not the response. And with this, you cannot start a new... uh, You cannot lead people to understand and become close to God. This is not worthy of a great philosopher, a great spiritual leader. This, is, this represents that there is no spiritual leadership here at all. To say that this, devoid, this world is devoid of God's interest is not the way, this is not what will help people, and this is not true. So he sins against his goal, which is his potential, his potential to be a leader and a wise man and a somebody who is uh, connecting humanity to God. And he, um, and he doesn't just now say there's no hashkacha. He says, well, since there's no hashkacha, and the truth is that I might as well never have been born. He starts to curse 
the moment of his conception, the night he was conceived on. He says, what's the point? If all things, if this world is really of no purpose, and that, what happens here is like this. There are people who live a nice life, people live a miserable life, everything here is random, and up there, that's where everything is different. Up there, everything changes. The people that were great get rewarded, and the people that were wicked get punished. But down here, this is a place uh, that's you know unjust and random. And he says, Lama lo mewechem amus. Why didn't I just die in the womb? He goes into a way of thinking, which is related to Noah Gachapratis, which is the natural outcome of thinking that God is not involved in the happenings of this world. He says this world is just random, people will suffer, and therefore, how does one avoid this fate? He starts to speak about the grave as the only escape. Now, you have heard people speak like this. I wish I were dead. At least, if I'm dead, I wouldn't suffer. The grave, I'll have peace. He speaks about death as an escape from this world. And that is also not befitting a great philosopher, certainly not someone who ostensibly for the rest of his life, the earlier part of his life, believed in Hashem and Olam Haba. The grave is not an escape. In fact, the grave is the opposite of an escape because then everyone gives a din v'cheshvan on how they did here and has to own up to how they used their life here. And what happens there is, um, is not going to be easier than uh, dealing with what happens here. But this is the talk of a person who is in a great depression. And, um, and he does this because he is actually trying to do what his friends will do further on, which is somehow justify God. That God defend Hashem, that uh, Hashem is just, but this world is random for whatever reasons. We'll get into that a little further. Maybe it's our fault that Hashem has removed his Hashgacha from this world. Maybe humanity no longer deserves hashgacha, and that's why it is. But if the case is that there's no hashgacha, and everybody here, have, some have great lives, some have bad lives, and I was selected to have a horrible life, even though the beginning of my life was so good. But then he says, you know, like the seven good cows, the fat cows and the seven skinny cows. He doesn't bring that muscle here, but he says, I can't even remember the good years. They, they, they are so fleeting. I'm so consumed with my misery. It's like they never even happened. So what's the point? I might as well never have lived, never have died. And whatever, so I won't have olam haba either. Just avoid the whole thing. I think the whole entire enterprise is purposeless. This is uh, the concept. It comes from depression. It's a result of great suffering. It's a pessimism, often called existentialism, that life is uh, life equals pain, and therefore it is futile and absurd. And in fact, there's an entire philosophical system built on this notion that there is no hashkacha and there is no olam haba, and because life is about pain and suffering, the best policy would be to avoid pain and suffering at all costs, and that is called epicureanism, which is not exactly eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you may die, but rather just don't get yourself into any situation that will cause you any pain. Maybe even avoid marriage, avoid having children, don't be a soldier, don't go to war, don't get involved in politics, just live your quiet life because... There's no point in the pain. There is nothing beyond. And there's, this was a huge, huge, and still is, philosophical system. It's a form of atheism, and it's a form of, leads to, they were not, the Epicureans, by the way, were not hedonists. 
but it certainly leads to that. They avoided pleasure too, because pleasure, you know, if you love somebody, then you could get attached, and then if you lose them, you could be in pain, so don't even get attached to anybody. So um, this comes, as we said, this is a function of depression, and it's a function of great suffering. And he says, however, but Hashem, he's confident that Hashem's mercy will be evident in the world to come. And, uh, and he's and even willing, he's suffering so much, he's even willing to forego that. That's how far, that's how bad his suffering is. And my grandfather goes into a discussion here that death is not the great equalizer. It's rather life that is the great equalizer. He is saying death is the great equalizer. Everybody dies, and you know, no matter what situation you have here, in the end, everybody's dead. He says death is not the great equalizer at all. Death is the great divider. It divides between the people that succeeded and made a success out of their life spiritually and those that didn't. But life is the great equalizer. Because here you can have a person who is perhaps insignificant for 60 years. And then they do something so significant, so important, that it makes all their insignificant 60 years suddenly worthwhile. Or you have a person that had a very important role for 60 or 70 years, and then they sabotage themselves, do something that is such a disaster or such a disgrace that their entire life is a failure and they go down in disrepute. And so life is the great, is the great equalizer here. We, the playing field is equal in this world between the rich and the poor and the smart and the not so smart and the uh, powerful and the weak. It, this is the great equalizer because we don't know the roles and the, uh, everyone is destined or can play or the moments, you know, never underestimate anybody for good or for bad. Here is where people constantly have a chance to make, do something significant or, God forbid, fail. And so life is not purposeless. Life is always a challenge. Life always presents opportunities. There's no sense in talking about life as futile and as purposeless. Even if life is difficult, it is very purposeful. Every difficulty poses a challenge that a person can use to achieve very great things. And uh, therefore, life is worth living with enthusiasm, despite death and difficulty and suffering. We are asked to still embrace life and every moment of it, no matter, despite the fact that we know the, uh, the, the, the threats looming around us. So um, my grandfather says here, during life on earth, the smallest, seemingly most insignificant person can commit an act of greatness which will instantly make him a gadol, a great person. And so Eov is wrong here in, in denigrating life itself and the purpose of living. But again, he's not punished. It comes from great suffering. And the fact that this is written uh, in this sefer means that it is, not, it is not necessary for a person to repress these feelings. They can be expressed. Eov expressed them. They're natural feelings. And yet we have to go beyond them, continue on with the Sefer, and see you know, how we respond to those feelings. And the Eov just lists, this is his first introduction. As we said, no hashkacha, it's futile. There's no point in it all. I wish I was dead. The grave is the only place of respite for me, and um, I just want to die, and I beg God to just let me go. That's number one. Question: um, the, the, the Kashan would have to prove himself 
We just we talked about what the satan is. That's the satan is not an, a separate force that is competing with God or challenging God. The satan is Hashem's creation, as good as any other malach that Hashem created. The satan is our friend. The satan is there like weights at the gym to challenge us to get to the next level. And the satan, so to speak, talking to Hashem here, is just putting, giving characters, giving, giving these arguments kind of personalities or characters. The arguments exist in the world. Of course there was. Right, of course, exactly, precisely. There was no way to get to the next level because we said that his starting point was in Parakal of Hashem Natan Hashem Lakach. He was, that was his starting point. So to push him to the next level needed a, much more, exactly. So, um, but, but had he succeeded, we spoke about who he would have been. So, um, so now Eliphaz answers, uh, uh, starts to answer Eov. He's the first speech is the speech of Eliphaz, who is a very great person. As we said, almost he is a, he is uh, he is uh, said to have had nevuah, not a high level of nevuah like our neviim, but still nevuah to a degree that he saw into the deeper recesses, so to speak, of the governance of the world, and he was able to see things more clearly. But here he made some very good points and some very bad points. So first of all, no one yet understands that what's really bothering Eo, because he hasn't fully expressed it yet, is he's terrified of losing the amuna that he has in Hashem. He does, he'd rather die without having blasphemed Hashem, thinking, okay, uh, Hashem will take care of business up there, but at least he'll have died with amuna in Hashem's justice, in Hashem's kindness, maybe not in this world, but still he doesn't want to lose his amuna. He wants to die without having committing the ultimate sin, which he doesn't want to commit, and that's why he starts out first begging for death. Okay. So um, now Eliphaz, who doesn't quite understand this yet, says to uh, um, trying to encourage him. He tries to start first to encourage him. Think about it. What would you say if you had to respond to Eo? What would be your first Presentation. So I'll tell you what Elifa says, and you tell me if, if you were Eov, would this help you? So he says to Eov, he goes, remember, he says to, he says to Eov, remember who you were up till this point? You were the one with such enormous amuna in a Baruch that you were the one that would go visit all the miserable people that were suffering and be mechazik them and tell them about Hashem's gashgacha and tell them how good Hashem was. That was you. What happened to you? You gave these speeches to everybody and now you can't draw on them for yourself? And he says to him, your intelligence has become your foolishness. How could it be? Eov, get a hold of yourself. You're suffering, it's true, and it's making you confused. That's the first thing Elifa says. You, your, your, your mind is confused. The suffering is talking, making you talk crazy. Just can you take one step out of it and remember all the encouraging things that you used to say to everybody else when they were suffering, when you were so sure that there was hashkacha and everything Hashem did was good. And he says, uh, the fact that you've lost it so quickly... Okay, the fact that you've lost it so quickly, first of all, that implies that maybe it wasn't so real. 
Maybe you really hadn't worked it out deeply in yourself. And you know, because you, you now he adds the real dagger, and you know that because, because you used to tell this to everybody, you used to say the following, Zaharna, remember what you used to say? Mihu naki avad. Have you ever seen a good, clean person, a righteous person be, be, uh, be punished, be persecuted by God, be destroyed? You used to ask them that question. Have you ever seen a good person be destroyed? So now he's saying, Yo, first, of all, first of all, maybe your amuna wasn't so deep. You know, let's just say, and maybe that's your sin. Maybe that's why you're suffering. And also, you used to tell people, simple, there's no innocent person who Hashem just destroys. So Eov, tell that to yourself. There is no innocent person who Hashem just destroys. By definition, that means you are not innocent. So he turns Eov's own work against him, and he says, look, you told it to other people, you have to say it to yourself. Right? Innocent people are not punished. So therefore, if you're being punished, you are not a naki, nihu naki avad, the eifo yasharim nechadu. I've never seen a naki be punished. I've never seen a yashar person uh, become, uh, you know, be, be obliterated. Therefore, by definition, you're not a naki and you're not a yashar like you think you are. Okay? Now, my grandfather says here, somebody is suffering. The person says, I want to die. There's no purpose to this. Clearly, he says there's no purpose because he doesn't think he did any sin that merits such treatment. If he did think he did a terrible sin, he wouldn't say such a thing. He'd say, oh, this is, this is for my sin. So he's not admitting sin. There are two choices here. He's delusionary and he's a big sinner. Or he really didn't sin. And he's saying the truth. The truth is that he didn't sin. But in their mind, that's not an option. Because there's an axiom that God is just. Here's how it goes now. Here's, this is the bulk of Eliphaz's arguments. And also the next one, the next argument from Bildad. Simple. Let's, say, let's agree on a few things. God is all-knowing? Yes. God controls all things? Yes. God is perfectly just? Yes. God is all-good? Yes. You are suffering? Yes. Does God know you're suffering? Yes. Is God just? Yes. Therefore, do you deserve your suffering? Yes, you deserve your suffering. Why would a person deserve suffering? Because they sinned against God. There is no other reason to deserve suffering. That is the equation. It's very simplistic. And later on in the book, Eov says, I'm not two years old. I could make the same argument. I'm not dumber than you. In fact, I'm smarter than you. And I didn't even, that, that's not the argument to make here. Do you think Hashem conducts the world so simplistically? That's the whole cheshbon? And, if our, and we, our minds, can grasp it so easily. You sin, God's good. You sin, you're suffering. That's the whole thing. That explains God. He says it's much more complicated than that. And, uh, and the first thing we learn here is that the, it, this intro by Eliphaz. Hey, Eov, get a hold of yourself. Remember what you used to tell people? You used to tell people that everything is good and nobody suffers unnecessarily. So tell it to yourself, A. And B, when you do tell it to yourself, that means you're suffering for a reason, you're a sinner. Now, the halacha is, you are not, if somebody, my grandfather tells a story, I'll read it straight from here. He says like this, I once have had the experience of visiting a very fine and highly regarded Jew who had his faults, like everybody else, who was suffering with a terrible lung disease. This is on page 38, from which he eventually died. While he was having an acute attack of pain, he asked me, why must I suffer so much? What have I done that was so bad to deserve this punishment? At that time, I could have told him, oh, I remember certain things that you did which were not so right. 
Of course, I refrained from doing so out of deference for his feelings. Had I told him what I was thinking at that moment, as Eliphaz had done to Eov, that would have been a violation of the Isser of Onas Devarim, verbal abuse. But what one may do, okay, one can counsel a suffering person in general terms, saying that he should say vidui, he should, like all other people do when they face trouble or death, and that would not insult him. But you're not allowed to tell somebody, you know, specifically. And he says that the mistake here was in seeking an expl- explanation for why Eov was suffering, because in the end, and this is the bulk of the Sefer, Hashem does not need humans to defend him. It's okay to say our human minds cannot comprehend Hashem's ways and leave it at that. You don't have to take the next step and accuse an innocent person of being a sinner. So, it goes on, and... Um, he, and he made, this is a good argument by, by Eliphaz. He says, you're asking Hashem to, you're asking to understand Hashem's justice. But he said, think about it. Who was the one that created your mind which gave you the capacity to think about the concept of justice? Where does our notion of justice even come from? Animals don't think about justice. It's just survival of the fittest. So where do humans even get the notion of some kind concoction called justice it that something things should be fair obviously Hashem implanted that in our mind we are hardwired to think about justice so the one who created us to think of justice must himself have the mind of justice and must be just how do you otherwise account for the fact that humans know of such a thing called justice it comes from Hashem, we are like Hashem, and therefore, by definition, of course Hashem is just. So we're right on that, but we're also right on the fact that you can't understand Hashem's justice. He didn't give us that capacity. So he says to him, he goes on to say, don't expect to have any ability to grasp the concept of Hashem's justice. And he says, if you don't start using your mind and your heart to try to figure out what you did wrong, you're living in a delusion. And he's encouraging him and, uh, to, to um, really think deeper, find his sin. He's saying, you're just, you're just in denial. When Eeyam says, I didn't sin, he says, you're in denial, you must have sinned. But he encourages him. And he says, you know, just like Tarat Rabim Chati Nechama, when other people are suffering, you have a little bit of Nechama. So he uses that angle. And he talks about the fact that Eeyam is not the only one suffering. And he help, tries to help him by reminding him that other people suffer too. And in fact, the Gemara says that there was a Rabbi Yochanan who had lost 10 children and he would go visit bereaved people who had lost their children and he would bring with him a tooth which had belonged to his 10th son. He says, I lost all my children. You know, and that somehow was an achama to the person that lost uh, one child. So then we jump a little bit further. This is Eliphaz's first attempt at... Um, talking to Eov, and, uh, and then he continues, and he goes into, this is in chapter 5 already, this Sarat Rabim, he says to him that mitzvahs are purposeful, and um, mitzvahs are purposeful, they're not useless, they are here to grow, help us grow, and Yisurim also are part of that, that, that uh, process of growing, and the objective of Yisurim is to push us, but push us to where what is, what is realistic for us, and he makes a whole chapter 5, which we're not going to go into uh, in the Pesukim, 
he basically stresses that Eov, you have to know that even though Yisurim are there to prod you to think about what you need to do to do tshuva, Yisurim have their limits. They will have their limits. They only go up to a certain point. Hashem will not get you to a point that you will crack completely, lose your faith, destroy yourself in this world and the next world. You have to trust in the fact that Yisurim have their boundaries. And he tries to encourage him this way. Other people suffer. They get through it. Yisurim will come to an end. They only, they're, they're, not overwhel- they're not entirely overwhelming. And essentially his summary is that... Uh, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is doing this for a purpose, you need to take it seriously, you need to get control, you need to find your sin, and you need not to lose hope. Okay? That's uh, chapter, that's, that's Eliphaz's, two chapters of Eliphaz's int- uh, response. Here, Eo responds to, here Eo responds to Eliphaz. He says, okay, so do you know what you've just accomplished? <clears throat> you've convinced, chapter six, he says, now that you've convinced me, that there is hashkafa, as I used to tell everybody, and you reminded me, and in the Psukim you see Eliphaz stresses it, of course there's hashkafa, and you're sinning because Hashem wants you to find your, you're punished, you're punished because, you're suffering because you're supposed to look deeply. He says, okay, now look what you've done. If you've convinced me that there is hashkafa pratis, and Hashem is doing this to me, and I still maintain my position that I'm innocent, that leaves me with a much worse reaction, which is, Anger. So he goes from denial to anger. This is a natural progression. Okay, psychologists talk about it all the time. He goes into the phase of anger. And he says that um, he becomes terribly angry at the Kaddish Baruch Hu for making him suffer. And he says that uh, yeah, since Eliphaz couldn't offer any better solution than this, he's just made... The one that he offered, he's made his problems worse. Saying that uh, Eov is a sinner has now made everything worse. Because he's not a sinner, and God is doing this on purpose, so now where does that leave him? And uh, this anger that he expresses is wrong again, but he's not punished for it. Because he is suffering terribly, and this is what comes out of his mouth. He says that he feels he's being attacked by a Kaddish Baruch Hu on all fronts. And he then reiterates what he said before, which is just, now it's even worse. I'm being attacked, and it's purposeful, but I have no idea what his purpose is. Now just let me die, because I'm even closer to Chas Shalom saying the wrong thing. And being a blaspheming Kaddish Baruch Hu, what we call blessing Hashem. And he begs for death, but he's not going to uh, get any, any death here. This is not gonna, he's, he has no escape. And he tell, then he tells his friends, he gets very angry at them in the end of chapter 6, and he says, you know, you would sell your own friend, so to speak, for money. You just turn against me in an instant, calling me a sinner when I tell you it's not true. There's got to be a better explanation here. You've, now, if you're telling me, if you're telling me that, that I'm a sinner and I know I'm not, and that's the only reason why I'm suffering, then all I'm left with is anger and frustration, and a sense, perhaps, God forbid, of injustice. I don't, all you're doing is you're turning this whole thing around and making Hashem look bad. Not me, because I'm innocent. Hashem is looking bad now. So he says, and you're pushing me to the limit, and you're offering me nothing, and you've turned against me with, with cruelty, without any sympathy. You don't even trust me when I tell you that I'm not a sinner, and you're just determined to accuse me in your efforts to defend God, which nobody asks you to do, and Eob holds out for a better explanation. Okay? He says, um, he says, uh, 
this, we will jump over chapter 7 where Eov makes essentially the arguments that we just said until we get to chapter 8 which is where Bildad comes in. Now Eliphaz was encouraging and Eliphaz um, didn't directly tell Eov what his sin was but Bildad goes to the next level and he says I'll tell you what your sin was because you can't seem to figure it out. And when I tell you what your sin is, you'll see that you're guilty. And the encouragement I'm going to give you is if you do tshuva on this sin, Hashem will forgive you and everything will get better. What do you think is Bildad's accusation? His accusation comes down to you were not machanach your children correctly and they are, they, you, had to, you didn't give them musr and look at your children, look how the lives they leaded. That's why Hashem killed them all and you're sinning because you should have held them to a higher standard and you're thinking you're innocent, but you might have been a good Jew, but when you saw your children behaving the way they did and you didn't give them musr, that's your sin. So the first direct accusation to Eov is he is guilty because his children weren't so good. Now, what did his children do? So in the beginning of the Sefer, you could go back and look at it. They were very wealthy. They loved each other. They were very close. And they used to make, every week they made a feast and the whole family got together and they ate and they drank and they celebrated and they rejoiced. And it says in the beginning of the Sefer that Eov was afraid that perhaps in these sudas that they made, they might have gotten a little bit lighthearted and it might have been a little bit, de- maybe it would have degenerated into just gashmias and taiva and just too much pleasure. And he used to give karbanos every week after their family get-together, just in case, chas v'sholem, there was some behavior that was not l'shem shemaim and that was not spiritual and was just pleasure for pleasure's sake having a feast in a beautiful home with all the brothers and sisters, having a great time. He was afraid that this could lead to, a, you know, Haskashalam kind of just uh, self-indulgence, and uh, he always gave Karbanas about that. So Bildad comes and he picks the most obvious thing that, you're, that people like to accuse other people of. Look at you, you have a, you have, you're having parties and you're having a good time and you're not, and that's illegitimate. You are being punished because you lived so well and you enjoyed yourself so much. Okay, that's very obvious. It's very easy to pick something so obvious as that I have 10 healthy children who are all wealthy and love each other and have a beautiful suda together and other people get angry and other people get jealous and say, okay, that's wrong. You're not allowed to have that. That's why you, your children, those sudas, they were just excuses for self-indulgence and pleasure parties, and you didn't give a musr, and that's why this whole thing happened to you. And if you do tshuva, then Hashem will forgive you, and you'll get back your wealth and your family, a new family. That's Elda's direct accusation on Eov. Okay? So it says that Eov is entirely responsible for his children's bechirachashas, and nobody is entirely responsible for the choices their children make. We have very great people who do their best and their children make terrible choices. And you have very mediocre people, or worse than mediocre, and their children do great things. And everybody knows that everybody has their own bechira, and everybody has to make their own decisions, and of course it's the responsibility of a parent to guide their children. However, you cannot completely be responsible for everything your children do. And to blame someone because their children, who are grown-ups, who themselves are responsible for their own choices, did something that the parent might not have approved of, okay, that's, that's not a way to go. <laughs> yeah, these are arguments that are presented and discounted. Yeah. 
Let's not talk about ayin hara now, but it's not brought up here as an ayin hara. This is not an ayin hara as much as uh, is as really direct criticism. This is not mystical or spiritual. This is saying Bildad's message is that he is suffering as a punishment that he can't figure out, but Bildad figured it out very easily. It was clear to him. He did not educate his children properly, and he neglected their spiritual life. They became hedonistic. They were too frivolous, and this is all Eov's fault. Okay, and so the children are punished with death, and Eov became poor and physically afflicted, and this is all because of Chinuch. And uh, all he needs to do is um, is to do tshuva. Now, Bildad's words are spoken, okay, um, with a bit of ruach hakodesh. This is what we have to make clear. As are the words of all the people in these discussions, including Eov's. Okay, there is some Ruach HaKodesh in here, which means, but not necessarily, okay, this is a complicated thing, not necessarily as understood correctly by them. Even Elifa said he had a Nevoah, which he knew was supposed to be directed at Eov, but he went too far. He didn't, he didn't, he, he brought in his own interpretations. There is truth to the fact that perhaps Eov should have been more careful with his children's chinuch. But there is no truth to the fact that this is why he was suffering. Never does it say in the beginning of the Sefer that he's suffering for this. He's suffering simply to see if Hashem, if he will rise up to the challenge of accepting these surim, despite the fact that there is no explanation for them. There is no, in the end of the Sefer, Hashem does not give him an explanation. There is no explanation for the suffering. It is not because of any of these reasons. The only words in this Sefer that have no truth to them because there is a little truth in, the, in these arguments. The words of Eov spoken out of suffering and anguish, the words of anger, the words of denial of Ashkach those words have no truth to them. But everything everyone else says has some degree of, we take with some degree of consideration, not as, as an explanation, but when a person does go through the process when they're suffering of looking into their actions, and seeing, because most of us are not like Eov, completely perfect, most of us get Yisurim and do look at ourselves and do find reasons where we should improve, one of the things we look at is our chinuch. Are we ensuring that, you know, the best that we can do to direct our kids correctly? And that is, there, there's truth in that need to do that, but, um, but that doesn't mean that that's an entire explanation for what's happening here. And, uh, and then I just want to, we're going to have to wrap up here. Bildad makes, um, makes a distinction. He says like this. He gives two, he gives two mashalim in chapter 8. We're in chapter 8, Pasuk 15. There's two mashalim. There's a mashal of a plant that's super vigorous and it's thriving. And as soon as you cut it, though, it withers and dies instantly. And he says, that was your children. They had this beautiful life. Everything looked good on the surface. They had you as a father, but you know what? There wasn't any real Yeras Hashem deep in, and, and that was it. They were done. But you, Eov, he compares him to an ivy, a healthy, vigorous ivy plant, but it it's can't grow because there's a, a, a wall of rocks that it keeps bumping into, so it has to be transplanted to another location. He says, you are, that's the muscle for you, Eov. You are a very alive, vigorous, healthy person, and however you've hit a brick wall and you can't go any further spiritually until you are so to speak replanted somewhere else in other words you need to make a shift in your life 
you need to shift the way you operate. You made a mistake, it had its damage, but you still have a lot of potential. Start over, do it better the second time. Hashem will give you back a family, give you back your wealth, start everything over again, don't make the same mistake again, and you will continue to grow in a new place. So just do tshuva on how you have, didn't take care of your children correctly, spiritually, and then everything will go back to where it should be and everything will be fine. So he tells him to do tshuva and that he gave his kids a terrible chinuch, okay? Um, so that was his suggestion, and Eov responds. He says, okay, that's ridiculous, and you know, he doesn't even answer it, and he starts praising Hashem, and he starts describing that uh, starts describing that a Kaddish Baruch Hu is um, you know running the world. He accepts Ashkacha Pratis here for this time. He does lapse a little later. He starts accepting Ashkacha Pratis, and he says that um, if a Kaddish Baruch Hu is sending him a message by means of his suffering to make him think about his life, then he needs help and understanding what that message is. He accepts if this hashkacha, he's at this point, okay, it's a message. I have to take a second look at my life. But what? It's not your answer, Bill Dunn, and it's not your answer, Alifaz. What is, what am I supposed to learn from this? And this is where Eov starts discussing that a human being is given a brain, a brain is, makes a person curious, and he goes back to this, he goes to this again, and a, a human mind is curious, and a human mind wants to know an answer, and therefore to withhold the answer is pure torture. So he wants to understand, and with this we're going to end. He says that um, he is looking, he is going, he wants to be able to present his case to a Baruch state his case, you know, ask for an explanation, and he would like Hashem to give him the explanation he's seeking, and then he'll be able to go on and fully embrace the Kaddish Baruch Hu, even if he's suffering. If a person knows why they're suffering, then they can endure their suffering because it makes sense to them. It's the lack of any direction, lack of understanding that is the ultimate torture that he is asking Hashem to, to help him out of that place because that could lead him to, in the end, deny everything, and then Chassashon lose his olam haba, which he does not want to do, and so he's asking for help in that area. This is um, this is essentially the back and forth until chapter ten. There's a lot more details in here, many more details. I highly, highly recommend that you pick up the sefer and. Until next week, go through the, the Pesukim in Parak 10 so you see all the back and forth. You'll recognize many Pesukim that we use all the time that come from Eov, come from his ideas, and it'll help us uh, understand the next phase, okay, where the arguments get more sophisticated and more, you know, more nuanced. And uh, the arguments might sound a little similar to each other, but they're not. There's different nuances in all the arguments. And the more you have background, the more we'll, uh, you'll, you'll gain from every little thing here. Okay, everybody have a wonderful week. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, how do we turn this off? This has to be turned off. She took them. Tanya has them. Okay, thank you so much for the <laughs> Thank you so much.